I'm gonna read Matthew chapter seven, verse twelve to fourteen. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and prophets: enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. I have a question for you this morning, and the question is: Do you know the golden rule? Now, it's uh, historians and theologians say that it's the most uh, famous, the most quoted teaching of Jesus. It's one of the most famous sayings in the world, actually, uh, since Jesus started using it, started teaching it. But do you know it? Now, when I think back to uh, when I was younger, my my early teenage years, uh, there was a comic strip that made a version of the Golden Rule famous, and there it was simple. The Golden Rule was: He who has the gold makes the rules. And I know it's cheesy, but that has been a famous saying. You can buy a plaque of that uh, to put on, on, on your desk or behind your desk just to remind people who's in charge. Now, when I was in high school, there was another version of the rule. And that version was, do unto others before they can do unto you. So that's the teenage boy version as you're trying to find yourself and, and you're measuring yourself against others and there's all kinds of pranks going on. So that was, do unto others before they can do unto you. Well, that's probably not the wisest saying. So something a little closer is, don't do anything to others that you do not wish done to you. Don't do anything to others that you do not wish done to you. Now, that's close to Jesus' saying, but it's not Jesus' saying. It's what Jesus said in the negative, and it was probably the golden rule of Jesus' day. It was the golden rule leading up to Jesus. In fact, we have some uh, history. There was a famous uh, Jewish rabbi, his name was Hillel, and in the year AD 20, so Jesus was alive already, his ministry hadn't started, apparently Hillel was challenged by a Gentile man who walked up to him and said, can you summarize the law and the prophets in the time that I can balance on one leg? That's what historians tell us. And apparently Hillel responded by saying this, what is hateful to you Do not do to anyone else. This is the whole law, and the rest is commentary. Go and learn it. Now, we know there are also parallel teachings from Confucius, from the Stoics, and from the hymns of the faith in Buddhism. But they're all negative sayings, every one of them. Do not do anything to anyone that you would not want them to do to you. Now, we actually have a modern adaptation of that rule. And sometimes in history, that's been called actually the civil rule. Now, the modern adaptation that I've heard people use, I've heard organizations, even professions have as one of their values, is that their value is to do no harm. To do no harm. That's just a modern version of the same thing. The golden rule, in its negative form, is do no harm. And a person to accomplish or fulfill that rule simply needs to do nothing. Right? You take no act, action against anyone that you would not want done to you. It's not actually a religious principle. It's a legal principle. It could be kept by anyone. And to keep the rule without making any positive contribution to family or society is entirely possible. So if you do no harm, if you do nothing, you just stand back 
not engaged, and actually make no positive contribution. In fact, in history, we've been told that it actually leaves room for evil to flourish. A famous saying that began about a century ago is the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. The only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. And that saying was probably made even more famous by Martin Luther King, trying to get people to actually engage in justice and race issues. And that is the very contradiction of what Jesus actually taught. So what did Jesus teach? What is the golden rule? Jesus took the familiar, do no harm, don't do anything to anyone else that you wouldn't want done to you, and he turned it on its head. So we've been in this series, The Beautiful Way, from before Christmas, took a break for Christmas, and continued on now, and it's in uh, the book of Matthew, chapters 5 to 7. And in chapters 5 to 7 of Matthew, you see Jesus taking common priestly teaching and turning it on its head quite often. So he begins by, often by saying, you've heard it said, but I say to you. And so people will lean in because they go, well, I know what I've heard said, but what are you changing, Jesus? And he takes an old teaching and gives it a new interpretation, a new twist, and introduces radical love, radical grace, radical service into people's lives. In fact, he does it in such a way, and it's so radical that people often thought this is impossible to do. In fact, there's been whole schools of theology that have said that teaching of Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, and that teaching in Matthew 5 to 7, that's not meant for us. That's meant for when he returns, because it seems so hard to do. Jesus covered topics of generosity and murder and divorce and loving enemies and worry and money and left people wondering, how can we live in the way that he is telling us to live? So what's the rule? In Matthew 7, verse 12, Jesus says, So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. So it's not the negative now, it's the positive, it's the take initiative rule. Uh, Eugene Peterson, who translated uh, the message, version of the Bible, put it this way. He said, here is a simple rule of thumb to guide your behavior. Ask yourself what you want people to do for you, then grab the initiative and do it. And do it for them. Add up God's law and prophets, and this is what you get. Take initiative. And you can't find a parallel to that in anyone else's teaching. It's radical, countercultural thinking. Now, it's applied, say, in Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 to 26, uh, to murder. So even if you succeed in not murdering, not hating, or verbally abusing others, you actually have not obeyed Jesus' teaching yet. You just have not done any harm to someone that you wouldn't want done to you. But you have not intentionally sought someone's well-being, which Jesus tells us to do. So what will it take to live by the golden rule? That's a question that people have been asking since they heard it the first time. What will it take to live by the golden rule. Well, when the rule is a positive saying, then we must actively do to others what we would want them to do to us. A new principle enters our lives. It's a new attitude towards others because now we're taking initiative. It's not that we're holding back something negative. It's that we are initiating something positive. It's one thing to say, I must not injure people. I must must not do to them anything bad. 
That the law can compel us to do. It's quite another thing to say, I must go out of my way to help other people and be kind to them, as I wish uh, to help them, and they would hopefully do that for me, because that's what I would want. Only love can compel us to do that. To do no harm is quite a different attitude than thinking, I must intentionally do good. I must intentionally be kind. I must intentionally be loving. For instance, if you own a car, the law can compel you to live according to the law and to drive according to the law so that you do not injure anyone else on the roads. But no law can compel us to stop and give someone a ride who is in need of help. No law can do that. That comes from inside of us. So to simply refrain from hurting or injuring people is not that difficult, really. It's a choice to respect someone's feelings, a a choice to respect their principles. It is far harder to to choose to make a deliberate policy of life, to go out of our way to be as kind to them as we wish they would be to us. It's so much easier to follow this rule in the negative form. In fact, it might even be doable. You can discipline yourself to not do harm to others. But that's very different than satisfying a rule that says, initiate, take the first step, be kind, be helpful, be loving, invest in others, change their lives. How do you do that without the supernatural love of Christ in your heart? You can't. You really can't. Now, if you have Christ in your heart, you're going to try to forgive as you wish to be forgiven, to help as you wish to be helped, to praise as you wish to be praised, to understand as you hope to be understood. You will never try to avoid those things. I mean, think about this. If that is what you wake up with every day, it makes your life and my life, if that is our attitude, much more complicated. That makes our lives much more complicated. You will have much less time to spend on your own desires and your own activities. If you're always stopping to help other people, if you're always thinking about, well, what can you initiate to extend God's love to people. If you always think about how do you, what can you initiate to expend, extend goodwill? I mean, that principle will dominate your life, your work, your, your home, your travels. It's part of everything that you do. It's part of how you think about absolutely everything in your life. And there is no way to fulfill that rule until our self-preoccupation, our selfishness, our self-fulfillment desires actually wither and die. We can't fulfill it unless those things are eradicated from our hearts. That is the reality. To obey the golden rule is to become a new, new women and men with a new center for our lives. Where self-effort dies, where striving ceases, where the focus of our self-identity is shattered uh, based on our efforts and we find our identity in Christ. Because that's the only way you will live by the golden rule. Now, just imagine a world focused on people, uh, filled with people living by the golden rule. There would be so many people trying to do good, we'd probably have to tell them to stop it. In fact, there would be no Karen videos on Facebook or YouTube that we see popping up as people try and capture others being really rude. And I feel sorry for anyone with the name Karen because that's come to, to signify someone who is, who is really prejudiced and very rude. But now it's a trend that people are trying to capture these videos. Now, I think most people think they try to live by the golden rule. I really do. They give it a good effort. But the problem is it's impossible for us to live by the golden rule if the standard we base our actions on is us, is ourselves. 
We can only do what the golden rule calls us to do by getting our eyes off and our thoughts off of ourselves, off of what we would want, off of how we would want to be treated. Because then we're still preoccupied with ourselves if that's what we're thinking about. The paradox of Jesus' teaching is that he knows it is impossible to live the golden rule in our humanness. To live with others best in mind, we have to quit thinking about how we want to be treated. Jesus is really outlining a new morality for us. To live out the golden rule is really to be perfect, and none of us can do that. That is why we have a choice to make. And throughout Jesus' teaching in Matthew 5 to 7, he is continually showing us the difference between two paths in life. One belonging to religious legalism, taught by Jewish teachers, others embracing the teaching of Jesus. Will we choose the way of self-righteousness and self-promotion, where even our best actions are based on our wants and desires, or will we put our trust in God and do things his way? That's really the question and the choice that Jesus keeps putting before us in these chapters. From the beginning of Matthew 5, starting with the Beatitudes until Matthew chapter 7, verse 12, Jesus taught a new way of thinking, a new way of living. And he introduced a new way of life in his kingdom, a way of living that is impossible to live as the religious leaders of his day lived. They couldn't do it because they were enslaved by their efforts. They were shackled to religious ritual, striving to keep laws and to live holier than others. It didn't work then and it doesn't work now. So what should we do? Well, verses 13 and 14 of Matthew 7 remind us we have a choice to make. This is what they say. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. So why should I go through the narrow gate? Why should you go through the narrow gate? I found it interesting how preacher and author Tim Keller uh, describes the gates. He points out that the word narrow had very negative connotations in Jesus' day. It's not just the negative connotations of our day, but it was negative in that day as well. The word narrow literally means to squash. If you step on a bug, what does it die of? Narrowness. You need a certain amount of space to actually breathe. Now, in contrast, the word broad in Jesus' day was a very positive word. It meant spacious. Broad carries the idea of freedom. But in this case, Jesus uses the negative word for the right way and the positive word for the wrong way. He turns things on his head again. Jesus is telling us the thing that looks good, the broad way, that looks like freedom, is actually the way that leads to destruction and death. And the way that looks bad, the way that looks narrow, the way that looks suffocating, actually leads to life and goodness. The narrow gate sounded negative even in Jesus' day. And it sounds even worse today. We hate the thought of being narrow. Now, if you do a quick uh, Google search on narrow-minded, you'll find this on the definition. Unwilling to consider new ideas or other people's opinions. And the synonyms for narrow are intolerant, conservative, prejudiced, biased. We want to be broad-minded. We take great pride in being broad-minded today. Broad is spacious, open, inviting, and tolerant. All great Canadian words, very popular words that our society values. But Jesus is telling us that the broad way is misleading. And it's misleading because that's the, the gate and the way that leads to destruction. And the narrow way that looks cramped is incredibly spacious and wonderful because it leads to life. Now, th- think, think through Matthew 5. 
Jesus contrasted through two ways throughout the Sermon on the Mount, beginning in, uh, in chapter 5. He said, I want to show you a new way, a different way. Or in, he would say, you've heard it said, but I say to you. And he is always showing a new and a different way. In chapter 6, we, say, we see that some uh, serve to be known, but that is not how he calls us to serve. And note that throughout chapters 5 to 7, Jesus is contrasting the good and, and two ways of living and the bad. Now, both groups that Jesus is contrasting did good. They both fed the poor. They both prayed. They both did good to, for, uh, to the society. That's what they tried to do. But they did it for very different reasons. You see, the Broadway people do it to get things done and to get things for themselves and to get leverage actually over God because now they will do enough so that God has to accept them to prove that they deserve a reward from God. And that's what they are working for. Narrow way people have a very different motivation. For narrow way people, doing good is a response to passing through the narrow gate. Take notice where the road and the gate are and how Jesus describes them for both narrow and broad. See, Broadway religions always have the road first and then the gate. Whereas Christianity, a narrow way religion, says first the gate, then the road. Why? Because in Christianity, someone else has given us entrance through the gate. Jesus gives us entrance through the gate. It is secured by his death and resurrection and the forgiveness of our sins as we turn to him and say, change me, make me new. I recognize I need forgiveness. Come and lead me. Take me down the narrow way. So Jesus is the one. And that's why the gate comes before the road. In Broadway religions, you have to earn your entrance. You have to do enough and you have to do it right. And then actually you have to cross your fingers and hope that it will be enough to get you in because there is no clear way to know if you've done enough. Notice the attitude of broad and narrow people. Ironically, broad people are often the most judgmental. They judge you for, doing, uh, for not doing what they think is right. They're always judging because if you're trying to, to earn your way in, there's always someone you have to be better than. So you're always comparing yourself to other people, trying to figure out if you've done enough, if you've earned your way through the gate as you've walked down the broad road. The broad way has led to a cancel culture. It's led to political correctness and the polarization that we see throughout North America and really around the world. That's part of the broad way because people have to judge themselves over and against other, others. So the language becomes more politically correct. The behavior becomes more politically correct. And the consequences for violating what is seen as the appropriate behavior become more extreme. In contrast, narrow way people understand that they actually are the problem. Narrow way people know they're sinners. They own it, repent of it, and they receive God's forgiveness for their sin. If you believe you are saved by grace, you know it's God's grace and not your effort that has saved you. Not your works that have saved you. It's Jesus who makes it possible for you to go through the narrow gate. Broadway people think that they are so open-minded that people would never need forgiveness, that people would never need to repent for their sinfulness. They just need to do good. They just need to do to not do to others what they would not have done to themselves. See, it's a very difficult road to walk down. And it's ironic that even it's those who recognize that the narrow way is inviting and Jesus is the one who actually makes it possible for us to enter that find freedom. And it's the broad way where you have to earn your way. You have to fight for your way. You have to recognize and hope that you're better than others. So that means you have to judge others because you're going to prove that you're better than others. Narrow way people recognize 
that only Jesus can do for us what we cannot do for ourselves, extend his grace and forgiveness. So it's quite ironic that there's quite a narrowness to the broad way. And the narrowness comes in thinking you can create your way to a new life, that you can earn reward to prove that you're better than others, to prove that somehow you can save yourself. But to do that, you're going to need a scorecard because you have to have a scorecard to somehow measure whether you are better than someone else, whether you've done enough, whether you're good enough to get some sense of security, some sense of confidence. The problem is that every scorecard has a a pass-fail line to it. It's like getting a GPA. Your grades are clear. Whatever your professor or your your teacher gives you, it's clear. You passed or you failed. If you have a 2.99 and you need a 3.0 to pass, then you failed. Grades grades have no grace. So I remember one of my boys in college, he uh, was really close to getting an award depending on his GPA. And when all his marks came in, the last teacher put his marks in and he was a quarter of 1% short of the mark he needed to get the reward. When talked to the teacher and the teacher said, no, that was your mark, too bad. You don't get the reward. A quarter of 1%. See, there's always a line. And in what we're talking about here, it's not just an award. It's not a scholarship. It's not a bursary. It's not a plaque. We are talking about life and death. We are talking about eternity. We're talking about destruction. We're talking about hell and heaven, the greatest issues in life that we face. So to, to, to weigh everything to put everything on a cutoff line of our own doing, I think is terrifying. But that's why if you put your faith in Jesus and what he has done on your behalf, it's good news because it's, he gives you the ticket through the gate. And that opportunity is there for everyone. And nothing makes someone on the narrow way happier than someone joining them in that journey and also receiving that free gift. Whereas often if you're on the broad way and you're comparing yourself to others, you're judging others, we actually get threatened by the goodness that others experience because then somehow we think there's less left for us. Narrow way people celebrate every time someone joins them on the narrow way. So is choosing the narrow way really best for me? Best for you? Let me tell you a story. A story of a lady named Sandra. Sandra was uh, on the broad way. She was a Mormon and had been a Mormon for 28 years. Mormonism is a Broadway religion. They, open, they welcome you with open arms, uh, but then you learn quickly there are things you have to do, things you have to earn, because they teach explicitly that Jesus' death on the cross is not enough, and grace, there is not enough grace. So you have to try and earn your way, and you will never know if you're actually going to reach heaven based on what you've done until you get there. So Sandra had walked down this road for 28 years. But God was working in Sandra's life. God was drawing Sandra for a number of years. And she's a real student, loves to read. So she was examining the difference between the Mormon texts and and, uh, the biblical texts and trying to understand more. Along that journey last fall, uh, one day Sandra saw a sign, an invitation for a ministry called Freedom Session, done by many churches. And it was being done by a church in her neighborhood. And she decided to attend. What she didn't realize is that Freedom Session is a narrow way ministry. Why do I say that? Because Freedom Session, as people work through their stuff, they discover who they are in Christ, and that ultimately freedom comes from Jesus and discovering our identity in Him. Now, about halfway through Freedom Session, one of the things that participants do is actually submit their lives to Christ and say, Jesus, I want what you want for me. I, wanna, I want freedom, in, and I find that in you. Now, here's the problem for Sandra. She was learning lots about herself and about God and about Jesus. 
But the problem is Mormons are told explicitly, you do not pray to Jesus. You only pray to God. So she was actually terrified to pray to Jesus. Around that time, she connected with a pastor at Willingdon. And conversation started and discussion about who is Jesus and what would this mean for her. And if she goes down the narrow way, it would be hard because it means she would have to reject her Broadway religion. She'd have to make a change to walk with people of Christ and not the people of of the Mormon church. But the day came when Sandra willingly and joyfully gave her life to Jesus. The next day she sent an email to, uh, to Willingdon and the email said, I woke up early like it was Christmas because it hit me. I am a Christ follower. So I emailed everyone in my freedom session group and leadership and told them, I am so at peace. Isn't it, isn't it interesting that you go from being terrified to pray to Jesus to as soon as she did that, she experienced the peace of Christ. That sense of coming home. Relationship with her creator. And she's been walking down that road now and continues to grow as a Christ follower. Remember, Jesus said, the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. In the book of John, Jesus also said, I am the gate and whoever enters through me will be saved. He will come in and go out and find, find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. And by the way, the, the thief is Satan who keeps wanting to push you to the broad way. And then Jesus said, I have come that they, you and me, may have life and have it to the full. I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. That's what Jesus does. And that's what Jesus did for you and for me. He invites everyone to enter. But he also reminds us that hearing about his teaching is not enough. There are actually choices to be made. The choice between self-justification and Jesus' justification. The choice between destruction and the choice for life. Throughout history, people have been called to make choices like this. God continually called his people, the Jewish people, to make choices. So this passage in the New Testament, Matthew 7, is equivalent to Moses' challenge to the people of God in Deuteronomy 30, where Moses said, See, I set before you today life and prosperity, death and destruction. Now choose life so that you and your children may live. A number of years later, Joshua does the same thing. Joshua chapter 24, verse 15, Joshua says, Choose for yourself this day whom you will serve. Jeremiah, talking to the people uh, in the book of Jeremiah chapter 21, said, And to this people you shall say, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I set before you the way of life and the way of death. And Peter, in Acts chapter 2, in the first sermon that's preached at the beginning of the new church, following Jesus' death and resurrection, Peter says to the people, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And Peter is saying, that's new life. But you have to make a choice. So what will you choose? Where are you today? Perhaps you've heard the teachings of Jesus, but you have not put your trust in Jesus. Maybe you consider yourself a Christ follower, but you've been standing on the sidelines, watching from the sidelines, for some reason afraid to jump in. Maybe you show up online, you listen to the messages, even agree with what's being taught, but you do not appropriate it for yourselves. It stays at arm's length. Today, I'm inviting you to make a choice, to make a full commitment, to choose the narrow road. So this week and last week as I was preparing for this message, 
and doing my daily Bible readings, uh, there's a, which I do every morning, and uh, I typically write out my prayers uh, it's to keep my mind focused on, on what God is speaking to me and what I want to say to him. And at the end of my journaling, almost every day I ask God a question. And it's this question. God, is there anything else you want to say to me? Because I find sometimes he takes me in very new directions as he wants to shape things in me and impresses them on my heart or reminds me of a scripture to go back to. Well, this morning, as I was doing that, uh, he very clearly impressed something on me. And it was this. He said, I have a word that I want you to pass on to the Willingdon family. I said, okay. He said, tell Willingdon Church that I'm inviting them into greater intimacy with me. Tell the church that I'm preparing them for the ministry I've planned for them as a church family. The invitation, he said, of the narrow way is an invitation to a full life, free from striving. Come and rest in me, says the Lord. Come and abide in me. I will guide you forward. He went on to say, the narrow way is a life of joy in me rather than striving without me. Don't be fooled by the, the appeal of the Broadway. And I thought, wow, that's, that's powerful. And I wrote that down as fast as I could. And then just how God works on the journal that I use uh, at the bottom of each page is a verse. The verse that morning was 2 Corinthians 9 verse 8, which says, And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. What a great God we serve. He said, Willingdon family, come and choose to come through the gate. Come and choose to be close to me every day. Come and choose to walk with me. And it is in my grace that you will minister. It's in my grace that you will do the things that the golden rule will lead you to do. It is in my grace because I am sufficient for you. You don't need to strive. You don't need to try and prove yourself. There's no GPA that you need to get because Jesus has already done that completed work. And if you have given your life to Jesus, if you said, Jesus, come and forgive my sin, come and be the leader of my life, come and guide me every day through your Holy Spirit, I will follow you the rest of my days. And he is faithful to do that. He is faithful to do that. So if you've walked with him for years, he's saying, come closer. Come closer because I have a work for you to do as a people in Burnaby and in greater Vancouver. And I will show you what it is in this unique time in history. If you've never known him, I'm going to give you an opportunity shortly to receive him and begin that relationship with him and receive the entrance through the gate. Perhaps you're fighting this internally. You're afraid of what it might cost you. Remember, God is with you all the way. Deciding to give your life to Jesus is just the beginning of a great journey. It's a decision to receive God's grace and enter into his family. So will you follow Jesus down that path? He's the only way to walk through that narrow gate. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. He's saying it's only through him that the narrow gate entrance is possible. The title of this message is uh, the, the Road Less Traveled. And I took that from the famous uh, Robert Frost poem, The Road Not Taken, that was published about a century ago. The last verse of that poem says this, I shall be telling this with a sigh, somewhere ages and ages hence, two roads diverged in a wood, and I, I took the one less traveled by. And that has made all the difference. The narrow way, Jesus tells us, is the road less traveled by. 
And I can tell you, just in my life, it's made all the difference. Speaking with Sandra, I can see the difference is made in her life. As she said, I am at such peace now. No more striving. No more wondering if I'm good enough. No more wondering if I've done enough. Because Jesus already did it. He's the one who did enough by going to the cross. And now we get to walk in that grace and live in that grace. So I want to pray two prayers. First, for the folks who are saying, okay, I want to make this choice for the first time. And you can simply repeat after me. Jesus, I give my life to you. Thank you for dying on the cross for the forgiveness of my sins. Please forgive me for my sin. And give me entrance through the narrow gate. Not only do I give my life to you, but I ask you to fill me with your Holy Spirit. And I ask you to be the leader of my life every day and help me to grow as I walk down the narrow road with your, in your family and by your grace. In Jesus' name, I pray. I also want to pray for those who, who are struggling. Uh, you're a Christ follower, but you've been holding back. Maybe you live by the silver rule. You just don't want to do harm to anyone rather than by the golden rule, which is to initiate, to step forward into what God would have for you in, in being a representative of his kingdom, wherever you are at home, at work, in your community, wherever it may be. So first, I will pray for those who have been struggling as Christ followers. Father, I thank you that you are so gracious. And I pray for those who are, who are watching right now or listening right now, and they've struggled. They've made a decision to follow you in the past, but something's happened. There's been disillusionment. There's been struggle. And I thank you by your grace, you stand there like a loving father with open arms, and you say, come home. Come home to me. I'm the good shepherd. I've already paid the price. Come home. I will forgive your sins, your wandering, and give you new life. The life you've responded to once already, but for some reason struggled. Whatever your burden is, you can give it to me, Jesus says. You can trust me. I am trustworthy. And so, give your lives to him in this moment. And finally, Father, I want to pray for us as a church, for the Willingdon Church, that you gave, you impressed on my heart that you have things that you want us to do. And I think it's incredibly timely in the season that we're in. I thank you for that encouraging word, Lord. I thank you that you are preparing us and you are inviting us into greater intimacy with you, greater relationship with you. And so, Father, I pray that if we haven't been spending time in your word, we would start doing that. If we're not in a life group and in community with others, we would, we would sign up for them and say, okay, I want to grow. I want to take that step. I want to quit thinking about myself and I want my eyes to focus on Christ and then through him to others for the things that he would have me do personally and us do as a community. Lord, we know the world is hurting. It's not just COVID. People are struggling. The Broadway creates a struggle and people are judging each other. People are trying to be politically correct, weighing themselves over and against others and there's so much pain and isolation in our world today and you call us to be the people of reconciliation reconciling ourselves to you and then bringing reconciliation to our world as we point people to you. Thank you for that, Jesus. Thank you. And please, Father, I pray that this moment would not be lost and that as people reflect on the questions that will come up in a minute, that you will take the message deeper or you will encourage people to click on the the place they can click online to receive prayer 
or to have someone follow up with them and help them take the next steps in a walk with you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.